0: The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christchurch Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com.
1: The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. From Ezekiel chapter 44. Also, the Lord brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, you are great and greatly to be praised. Your prophet Ezekiel saw the glory that filled the temple. His eyes could not contain your glory, and his heart quaked, and he fell to the ground. Your glory has come once again. And on that black day, that bloody afternoon when your son died, men beheld your glory. The temple failed Filled the veil, ripped for it cannot contain your glory. And on Easter morning, the earth quaked when Jesus rose from the ground because that could not contain your glory. Now, your glory has surged from the cross and the empty grave to cover all the earth. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. And so, we come to worship you now and amen. amen. What is your shame? Shame does not want others to see. Shame does not want others to know. Shame came into the world through a man and a woman in a garden. And on Resurrection Sunday, our shame began to be reversed through another man, another woman, in another garden. John chapter 20 describes when the risen Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene in a garden. And consider a few examples between Mary and Eve. Both women, first of all, were not seen right. When Mary Magdalene first saw Jesus, she thought he was the gardener. And then Eve believed that when she ate the fruit, her eyes would be opened and she would be like God. But Adam and Eve's disobedience opened their eyes to their nakedness and to their shame. And this shame exposed a kind of self-reliance to cover yourself from being known that still drives people today. You don't want others to see. You don't want others to know. Because if they really knew, they would be so embarrassed to have you as a friend, as a wife, as a child. So what do we do? We grab those big leaves so that way your shame won't be known. Mary Magdalene was a true daughter of Eve with a shameful past. Do you know her past? I remember she was the woman possessed by seven demons totally under the power of Satan until Jesus set her free. Do you have a past you'd like to hide? Are you ashamed of your disobedience? Are you ashamed of your viewing history? Are you ashamed of the state of your marriage? Are you ashamed of how your kids turned out? Are you ashamed of your grades or your career or your house? Are you ashamed because you're not married yet? Are you ashamed of your weakness, your sickness, your inability to help? All the resulting guilt And regrets and shame can possess you as fiercely as seven demons. But, but here's a glorious hope. Your hope is that the man who bore all shame met a shameful woman in a garden. And when Jesus called her by name, Mary, her eyes were finally open to see Jesus and she clung to him. This is the good news for Mary and for all who are possessed by shame. Jesus knows you and all your sin and all your shameful past. He really, really knows you. And he calls you by name. Jesus is alive and all that causes shame is undone. So stop fumbling with your fig leaves. Stop attempting to cover your own shame. See him. Cling to him, believe in him, for Jesus is your glory. Ezekiel 44, 6. Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. Our Father, we confess our sin to you. Like our first parents, we gladly listen to Satan's lie and try self-promotion and then self-reliance. We listen to the lies to believe in yourself. You do what feels right. Let him touch you. Go ahead and have another drink. Go ahead and look at those pictures. You deserve it. This sin leads to shame. But when we are bound in our shame and listen once again to the devil's threats, we believe that there's nowhere else to turn. We can't be different. We can't stop being this way. And our shame leaves us like Mary Magdalene, weeping in the garden. So many people have grown up in the church are still like Mary. We have known Jesus. We have walked with him. We know the stories. But in some of our darkest sins, our deepest hurts, in some of our greatest disappointments, and some of our greatest failures, We do not see Jesus standing right before us. We don't believe he can really forgive all our sins and cover all our shame. We do not recognize our glorious Savior. Give us now eyes of faith to see the risen Christ who forgives. Give us ears of faith to hear Jesus calling. Give us hearts that hate sin and shame and the lies of Satan so that we can truthfully confess our sins to you. And we now confess our individual sins to you and Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Listen to this good news from Ezekiel 36. This is what God promises to do for you. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is the good news of what our crucified Christ and our risen Christ has done for you. That through him, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to
0: God. The sermon text this morning is Psalm 88. These are the words of God. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances far from me, You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up, and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness? In the place of destruction shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Let's pray. Father, you have ordained that by the preaching of the gospel, you would raise the dead. And I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would do that work this morning, in us. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Genesis 1, to 1-2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days they did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days exodus 10 21 to 23 now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour and about the ninth hour jesus cried out with a loud voice saying eli eli lema sabachthani that is my god my god why have you forsaken me Matthew 27, 45 to 46. Do you know what it's like to live life in the dark? Have you ever found yourself in darkness so black that it didn't matter whether your eyes were open or shut? You couldn't see anything, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. There's a reason children are afraid of the dark. Why nightmares happen at night. There is this primordial fear we all have of the dark, of the deep, of the formless void and endless ocean of blackness because in the darkness, you're vulnerable. You're exposed. You can't see what's coming and anything can happen. If you've ever been in the dark for a long time, you know what it's like to long for the light to come on again. If you've ever driven late through uh, the early morning hours and you can't see anything but where your headlights can show you, you know how beautiful it is when the sun finally rises. Some of you got up early this morning to go sing hymns at the cemetery. Maybe You got to see the glorious sunrise. Do you know what it's like to live life in the dark? Imagine for a moment that you were blindfolded right now. uh, Completely, no peeking. You could even close your eyes right now with me and imagine this. What if I told you, close your eyes, and I want you to stand up right now, and I want you to walk to Pullman. But here's the thing, I say, I will give you $10,000 if you can make it from where you are sitting right now to to the Pullman Walmart. I'll give you 10 grand if you can get there. But here's the thing, You, you can't ask anyone for help. You can't call an Uber. All you have to rely on is your sense of smell, of touch, you're hearing, and I suppose your taste buds, but I don't know how, if your taste would help you very much. Could you get there? Could you get there? Life is dangerous in the dark. I wonder how far you'd get, wandering blindfolded like that. Or how long it would be until you cross Main Street and <laughs> car hits you. I mean, I run into doors with my eyes open. Imagine walking around Moscow in the dark. And yet, for all the danger and fear of physical darkness, of wandering the streets trying to find your way, this is, of course, nothing compared to the spiritual and emotional darkness that I just read in Psalm 88 in our text this morning. Proverbs 18.14 says, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a wounded spirit who can bear. In other words, your body—I mean, you can endure a cold, right? You don't feel well, but but Proverbs says a wounded spirit, a sick heart, who can bear that? And what is Psalm eighty-eight but the cry of a man with a wounded spirit, of someone whose burden beyond what he can bear. Now, this was not a psalm of David. You could look at David's life. He had a lot, uh, a lot to pray about, a lot to cry about. But who wrote this psalm? If you have a Bible, I, I believe the text is in your bulletin. I don't know if it includes the heading. But in the heading, we are told that this psalm is a psalm of the sons of Korah, a contemplation of Haman the Ezrahite. So who was this Haman the Ezrahite? We don't know for certain who this Man was, but it is possible and quite likely that he was one of the wise men who is listed in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 to 31, to illustrate how much greater Solomon's wisdom was. I'll read for you this passage from 1 Kings. It says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. And here it comes, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Haman, Calcol and Darda the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So. It's possible, it's highly likely that this Haman was a contemporary of Solomon the Wise. He was a wise man in his own right, but either way, when you look at Psalm 88, you wonder does this really belong in here? Commentators wonder is this actually a a real Christian inspired prayer? But we know we're Christians. We believe that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for rebuke and correction. And God is the ultimate author of Psalm 88. I look through our contus to see, do we have Psalm 88 in it? Herb hasn't written a Psalm 88 yet. We we don't sing Psalm 88. Has anyone ever sang Psalm 88? I haven't. But if you were to sing this song, I wonder what kind of music you would compose for it. What would fit the content of this song? I would put, I think, the most melancholy tune that I could compose. I would have a bridge that would break your heart as he says, Why do you hide your face from me? This is a solo voice, no harmonies. No friends to sing with, just a solitary, shrill cry in the night. Psalm 88, if you read through the whole Psalter, is the darkest psalm in all of Scripture. It's the darkest song that you could find. In both the Hebrew and English, the last word of this psalm is darkness. Verse 18 says, it closes with, Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Darkness. One translation is even more dramatic and says, darkness has become my only companion. Your your only friend is darkness now. Seems kind of melodramatic. Robert Alter, the the Hebrew scholar, translates it this way, my friends utter darkness. My friends, M dash, utter darkness. It's just Two words in Hebrew. So this is the the song of a man who feels utterly alone. Totally in the black. This is the description of life in the darkness. And I wonder, have any of you ever experienced this? To be at the bottom. Maybe you're feeling that right now. And God is putting the lights out in your world. And it's getting dimmer and dimmer into the black. Well, this morning is Easter Sunday. It's the day of resurrection, and you may wonder, why have I chosen this psalm to preach on this day? Why did I give you those three texts at the beginning of this sermon? Well, I gave it to you as a riddle to ponder. <laughs> For those of you who don't know where I'm already going, let me tell you what I want to do in this sermon. First, I want to answer the question, why is the psalmist so distraught? He says in verse 15, I am distraught, and I want to know why. How did he end up here in the dark? How do you end up in the dark? Second, I want to look at the questions he asks God in the midst of his suffering. What are the cries of a man in the dark? And lastly, I want to know Is there an answer to these questions and doubts? Why is the psalmist so distraught? What questions does he ask? And is there an answer to these questions? So number one, why is he distraught? The psalmist, if you look down at verse one, he begins by directing his prayer to God. He says in verse one, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. And what verse 1 does is frame the rest of the psalm. It puts the context of everything else after it into the context of faith. Maybe you feel like God has forgotten you, like your prayers are not being heard. You ask for that thing over and over and over again until you wonder, is he really listening? Well, if you ever have read through the psalms, you know this is a common refrain. God constantly instructs his people to pray, God, where are you? God inspires, commands us to pray this way, to sing this way. And that is how this psalm begins. He says, take that, take those doubts and those fears and your complaints to God. So this is not a prayer of utter despair. It is still a prayer of faith as dark as it is. And then in verse 2, he goes on to plead to the Lord to hear his cry. He says, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. This is a grown man, a wise man, crying out to God. This is the example of a man who knows that those who sow in tears will reap in joy that those who plant their prayers in the ground like seeds and water them with their tears will have their mourning turned into dancing and their darkest nights turned into the light of day. And so he prays. This is what Haman the Ezraite does. He pours out his soul to God and pleads for the Lord to hear him. In verse 3, he describes the state of his soul. He says, For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. You know what it's like to have a soul full of troubles, a backpack of bricks that keep getting piled on. Some of you are under great financial pressure, some of you are fighting ongoing illnesses, sicknesses. There's a number of deaths that have recently happened. And no matter when death comes, it is always grievous. It's always a sad thing. Some of you can't stop worrying about the future, and some of you can't stop regretting the past, and so your soul is full of troubles. It says in scripture that man is born to trouble. You're here, there's trouble here, and you're born to it like the sparks fly upward. And Haman was a man who had the furnace turned up on him. He felt that things were getting hot. And so he cries out to God with this soul full of troubles. John Calvin, uh, commenting on this verse, uh, says, You know, many people murmur and complain at the slightest discomfort. He's describing you. You know, it's cold inside and you whine, right? It's 65. <laughs> or it's too hot, right? We are so sensitive. We are so thin-skinned, and Calvin says here in Psalm 88, is not that. He says, quote, this is not from any softness or effeminacy of spirit, but from a due consideration of his condition. In other words, Haman is not being a crybaby. This is an honest lamentation from someone enduring an excruciating providence. Whatever's going on in his life merits this kind of response There is a time when man's courage is overwhelmed by grief when the soul is vexed beyond belief it feels as if god has severed us from the land of the living and this is what haman feels in verses 4 to 6 he says this i am counted i am numbered count me among those who go down to the pit i am like a man who has no strength right and if you're a man I mean, your glory is your strength. To have your strength sapped is to essentially emasculate you, to lay you low. And this is what he says, I am adrift among the dead, untethered from reality. I am like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. He says, you have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. God has buried this man. And then we come to verse 7, where we are given the answer to our question why is he so distraught? What is causing this vexation of soul? And he says in verse 7, Your wrath. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves, Selah you'll notice that there is little description of Haman's external circumstances. We don't know if he was in a Job-like situation where he had you know, lost his family, lost his children. We don't know if he's on the run or if there's enemies at the gate. We don't know anything that's going on in his life except that his friends have abandoned him and his soul is vexed. And those things may very well have been going on in his life, but notice what he, descri- what he ascribes his anguish to. He ascribes it to God's wrath. He looks inside and he sees the darkness and the loneliness and he says, you did this, God. It's your wrath that is lying heavy upon me. He goes on to describe this later in verses 15 to 17, he says, I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. From, from a youngster, he's been ready to die. What would cause a child to feel that way? What would cause a grown man to look back at his life and say, I've been ready for you to take me from my youth? He says, I suffer your terrors. Yes, God is terrifying. He says, I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me all together. Haman is a man drowning in the ocean and the waves of God's wrath are all about him. Do you know what the wrath of God is like? Have you ever gone to the ocean and, uh, and been tossed, been pulled out by the strength of the current? You thought you'd take your boogie board out there for a nice little ride, but a wave comes. that's way bigger than you anticipated, and it just smashes your face into the sand. It pulls you under. Your mouth is full of salt, and you're gasping for breath, and that's just you frolicking. Right? And Haman describes God's wrath as this torrential wave, this relentless, inescapable, powerful wrath that comes over him. If you've ever been in the ocean and you can't touch the ground anymore, you've walked out farther and you have to tread water. Just imagine closing your eyes and all of that, being totally disoriented, not being able to see where the shore is. This is what it's like to be under the wrath of God. You don't know if a shark's going to come and get you. You can't see anything down there. You're totally helpless. This is what the wrath of God is like. And there is no greater distress upon your soul than to be under God's wrath. Your parents' wrath, a teacher's wrath, your boss's wrath, the government's wrath, a king's wrath is nothing compared to the wrath of God. And what's worse is that this is your due, right? This is what you deserve. There is none righteous, no, not one. And God's wrath is not him being mean. It's him actually being righteous. This is righteous wrath being poured on sinners. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress that truth. And that truth is that you are ungodly. You are unrighteous, and you deserve to die in your sins. In God's scales of justice, you're not a victim. How long are you going to blame your parents, blame your abuser, blame the way you were raised, blame other people, and not take responsibility for your sin? When God's wrath is heavy upon you, that is what you deserve, make no mistake. And how many people right now are suppressing that truth and unrighteousness? They think, oh, just life is hard because life is hard. No. This is the wrath of God. It's personal because you sinned against a God who is glorious and holy You come to the confession of sin part of the service and if you have nothing to confess that probably means you regard God as not very holy and must not take sin very seriously at all. The wrath of God is righteous and this is what every man and woman born from Adam and Eve deserves. Righteous wrath. And this is how you end up in the dark. This is how you end up with a psalm like Psalm 88. This is a psalm for sinners. Haman the Ezraite, for however wise he was, was a sinner. And so what do you do? What do you do if this is you? Well, the psalmist is instructive here, and he starts asking questions. He starts asking big theological questions. If you look at verses 10 to 12, he gives six questions. He has he six questions from the darkness, and they are these. He says, Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? The psalmist wants to know, is there any answer to the fact that we all die? Is there any ultimate purpose in suffering? Is life merely a series of God's judgments with no way of escaping his wrath? Is there any hope in the dark? And if there is no God, well then, the answer to all of those questions is no. If there is no God, then you are just in darkness perpetually, and when you die, it's darkness forever. If there is no God, then what is evil? If there is no God, then why are you crying? Why are you whining? If there is no God... What standard are you, are you using to interpret what you're experiencing? But let's say I grant you, you, you believe in God. Well, if God is only a righteous judge, that, that still doesn't get you anywhere, right? Because now all you know is you deserve it. The pain in your life, the darkness in your life, that, that's what you deserve, And within the psalm itself, no answer is given to these questions, right? Read Psalm 88. I haven't seen this on any calendars. I haven't seen this in any Instagram posts of Scripture. She reads truth. Don't post this. It is likely that this psalm was written. If it was written in Solomon's lifetime, he died in 931 B.C. um, It would have been... 1,000 years until any answer would be given. So what answer is there to Psalm 88? Is there an answer at all? About a 1,000 years after this psalm was composed, these words were written. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the, what? Light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, 1 1-5. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the... Light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The psalmist asks, will you work wonders for the dead? And God's answer is yes, I will. The psalmist says, shall the dead arise and praise you? And God says, oh yes. The psalmist asks, shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? And God asks back. Let me ask you a question. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? If you know Proverbs 30 verse 4. What is that name? It's the name of Jesus Christ. This is God's declaration of love from the grave. The psalmist asks still more. Shall your wonders be known in the dark? And God says... I will raise my son from the dead, and his light shall not be extinguished. He says, will your righteousness be declared in the land of forgetfulness? And God says, there is one righteous and only one. And his righteousness was declared in the heart of the earth on Good Friday. Who was Psalm 88 written for? It was written for sinners But it was written for the lips of Jesus Christ, who would have our sin imputed to him, who would be counted as a sinner for you. It is a song for a man who says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 12, 27. It is a song for a man who had loved one and friend put far from him, as his disciples abandoned him and Judas betrayed him. It is a song for a man who endured way more than a metaphorical death, but a a bloody and brutal crucifixion who had the torrential waves of hot wrath poured upon him and drank that cup down to the last drop. Psalm 88 is a song For Jesus to sing. And when Psalm 88 is sung by Jesus Christ. It is not a song of darkness. It is a song of victory. Because God has now clapped back. God has said yes. I will declare my loving kindness. From the heart of the earth. And so all the fear of death. All the darkness. That you experience in your life. All the righteous wrath. That you deserve. Jesus Christ comes. And takes that for you. Will God work wonders in the dark? He most certainly will. And He most certainly did 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ rose from the grave so that all who believe in Him would have light and life in His name. And so I ask you today are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Are you living life in the light, or are you living in the dark? Maybe you confessed faith long ago, but you don't really take it so seriously now. You thought, I'll go to church because it's Easter. We do that, right? Maybe you've been backsliding. Maybe your life is like 80% light and 20% dark. Is that a ratio you want to live with? Do you know Jesus? Do you have deliverance from righteous wrath? If not, today is the day of salvation. Listen to Romans 10.9. It says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord And believe in your heart that Easter Sunday happened. That God raised Jesus from the grave. You will be saved. And this is what we celebrate every week. This is what we celebrate, especially today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God works wonders for those in the dark. So let's celebrate this together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For giving us your son, for delivering us from righteous wrath. And God, I ask that you would make those who are living in sin very uncomfortable in that state. That those who think they are living in the light, but really it's pitch black and they are deceived. I ask that you would open their eyes to their blindness. That you would raise the dead. That you would cause the light of Jesus Christ to shine forth in their hearts. And for those of us who are Christians, I ask that you would cause us to shine like light. You say you are the light of the world and you call the church a light. A city on a hill, shining bright. And so would you make Christ's church, would you make your church into that light in Moscow? Will you give us boldness to proclaim this gospel to a world who needs it? We ask all this in Jesus' name, and amen.
2: Well, one of my favorite Bible stories uh, is Jesus walking with two of his followers from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And when Jesus joins them, he asks uh, what they're talking about and why they're so dejected. And they share their surprise that he doesn't seem to be aware of all that's happened in Jerusalem, namely the crucifixion of Jesus uh, three days prior. Then one of the two, Cloapas, shares details of what they had witnessed, including the accounts of the, work, the women who reported seeing the empty tomb, and the, the angels announcing Jesus' resurrection. Cloapas shares that, well, you know, we had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Sure, they had heard of the strange tales from the women, they saw Jesus, and even the disciples who confirmed their stories, but they had not seen Jesus. And in one of these classic teaching moments, Jesus responds, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, like the Pharisees, these men had the scriptures, but they didn't see Jesus. At the moment they had even had Jesus with them, they didn't see him. And as the day was getting on, they arrived at Emmaus, and they asked Jesus to remain with them for dinner, which he does. And it says, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Now comparing notes, they concluded, were not our hearts burning with us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Well, the truth was penetrating. The truth was stirring their hearts. But it was at the breaking of the bread... At the breaking of the bread that they finally saw Jesus. Have your hearts burned with the hearing of the scriptures this morning? Now we are exhorted to see Jesus in this meal of communion. Look at this bread, his broken body. Look at this wine, his shed blood. Look around at those eating and drinking with you and see his body. Come then and look. Come then and see Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. In this memorial supper and in the work of your Holy Spirit, thank you for suffering in our place that all of our sins could be completely washed away and remind us of our salvation in Jesus, and also how you are making us more like Jesus for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom, because we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen.
0: I have two charges. One, if you're not a Christian, the next thing for you to do is believe and be baptized. So if that's you, uh, come talk to us. We'd love to uh, talk with you more about what the next steps are. And secondly, for uh, most of you who, who are Christians, you're going to go off to lunch or at least out into the foyer. I want you to consider this week: uh, if Jesus is alive, and He is, um, is that having any real difference in your in your life in your week? What look around your life. Look at your family. Look at your friends. What would not be there if Jesus was still in the grave? And then remember, he's not. He's risen. So rejoice as you contemplate that. Uh, receive the benediction. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon and remain with you always. And all God's people said, Amen.